You guys can go ahead and have a seat. We're going to get into God's word together. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. Thank you, staff team, for helping us. You know, we, we have such a wonderful staff team here at the church that when we have, uh, you know, crazy plans like, hey, you know how we got everything kind of resituated inside? Well, we just thought we'd go back outside again real quick. That's not a small task as things need to get moved around and then we can still broadcast things out to our friends and family online and at home and everything like that. And our staff just... Uh, selflessly serves, and uh, we're so grateful for all of them in the way in which you see their fingerprints all over today's service and in the baptism that we're going to celebrate here in just a little bit, but we want to welcome you. This is a special greeting on a special Sunday. Not only do we have the baptism service today, I was informed last night that today is also National Talk Like a Pirate Day. That's got to be special. I thought about delivering the message in pirate speak, and I decided that was a really bad idea. It was a fun weekend with a, a wild Penn State football game. Is anybody sort of stay up late watching the game last night? It's kind of exciting. My wife had some questions for me partway through the first half of the game. We were watching it, and I had made a offhand comment to her a few weeks ago, I said, I'm just not really that into Penn State football this year. I don't know. Just, just whatever. I haven't really thought about it. Not that big a deal. Halfway through the first half of yesterday's game, she said to me, for somebody who is not that into the Penn State football this year, you're being really loud. <laughs> but that was a different situation. I was having a bit of a personal issue with a certain SEC refereeing squad, but that yeah. Hey, church, over the last couple of months, we've been preaching through a series called Rebuild, Experience God's Restoration. And we're getting wonderfully practical in these recent weeks as we talk about the question of what would God call us to do now? What's God saying? What is the Spirit of God calling the people of God to? And I think when we get it right as the church, that is the question that we're deeply interested in asking, deeply interested in seeking. What is it that he wants to develop? He is the great architect, and we trust him as he builds and rebuilds his church. We have a part to play in it, as we've noted many times throughout the series. First Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And that's what we've done this morning in this beautiful sanctuary is we're declaring the praises of him who has called us. Can anybody say thank you with me to the worship team for leading us this morning? Wasn't that beautiful to sing hymns and choruses to the Lord? You, you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. So in recent weeks, we've been talking about some important subjects like, like prayer. What does it mean to rebuild the upper room of prayer in your personal life and corporately in our ministry? We've talked about worship. What does it mean to rebuild the altar of praise, to learn to minister to his presence? We've talked about belonging. What does it mean to rebuild community? 
especially after a season where so much has been frayed and frazzled. Last week, you heard a message on rebuilding muscle. What does it mean for us to serve? Each one using our gifts as God has intended to build up the body of Christ that we might be a greater witness for him. Our scripture today takes us to the story of Gideon, which adds some fairly powerful commentary, I believe, to each of these areas of ministry. It also comes at a time when the people of God were in a cyclical pattern of the need to rebuild because they would fall into disarray and sin and disobedience, and then they would need to be, be delivered again and brought back to be the people of God. Gideon was the fifth of Israel's judges. You can read about him in Judges chapter six. So if you have your Bible, you can turn over there. That's where we're gonna spend the majority of our time this morning. The enemy that he was dealing with was Midian, who according to Judges 6, were, they were oppressing the Israelites by stealing their crops and generally making their life miserable. They were overwhelming them with sheer numbers and devouring the produce of the land. They were provision robbers. They were joy stealers. They were energy drainers. And it strikes me that though the battle may look vastly different in your life today, that these are the kind of spiritual battles that you will face on a regular basis. Provision robbers, joy stealers, and energy drainers. So in some ways, when you might be tempted to say, I have no way of relating to the story of Gideon at all, I would make the argument that you actually can in some fairly substantial ways. I mentioned a moment ago that of all these subjects we've been talking about, prayer, worship, community, service, you see, the commentary that comes from the story of Gideon is this, that prayer was diminished in this season to nothing more than complaints with no expectation. We're going to see that in our message today. Worship was polluted with idolatry. Belonging and community were struggling because the people were oppressed. Uh, service, actually, is a very interesting thing. We see today in the area of service, it's interesting because we see that God's way of winning victories and conquering enemies is not always the same as ours, but it is better, both in efficiency and its ability to bring the purposes of God together here on earth. So let me give you just a real quick big picture of the story of Gideon. Gideon's story represents God's answer to the Israelites' need for deliverance. They've been crying out to God in their oppression as they did because it was the hardships of life that drew them back to the place of understanding their need. They're crying out to God. And before the visit to Gideon, there is actually a prophetic utterance that is given in, in uh, uh, Judges chapter six. And the prophetic utterance is this, your disobedience has brought you to this point. The inference in the message is, look, you gotta repent and you've gotta get back on track. And that is what leads us now up to this angelic visit to Gideon that we read about in Judges chapter six. It says in verse 11 that the angel of the Lord came, Gideon is beating out wheat in the wine press so that he can hide it from the Midianites because the Midianites are taking all the produce of the land. And so he's hiding in a wine press, beating out wheat. Verse 12 of, of Judges 6. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, 
O mighty man of valor, who happens to be hiding. (laughs) And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do do not I send you? Verse 15. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. May God add blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Keep your Bibles open there. Uh, to Judges chapter 6 as we're going to come back uh, to this here shortly. If you paid any attention in Sunday school growing up, you probably heard the story of Gideon and you do know that he does indeed lead the people to victory over the oppressors of Midian. But a lot happens before this battle is quote unquote fought because it's not fought in any kind of typical way. And I'd like to focus on the things that are leading up to that battle that God is doing in the process of rebuilding his people. First of all, we're gonna see today that God's identity and destiny must be called out. Secondly, we're gonna see that God's worship must be refined. And third, that God's economy must be embraced. I've been thinking about this message actually for a long time. Um, It was about a year ago I was, uh, we were going through a, a rough season, you know, we were working through COVID and changes and, and difficulties. And in the midst of that season, I had invited people who were upset about various things that were happening in the life of the church to share what was on their heart, to share what was on their mind. There were a lot of misunderstandings. There was a lot of mistrust. There was a lot of things we were just, we were wrestling through as many churches were and are. Some folks had left the church. Several issues were causing stress, robbing joy. And one of our folks came and and met with me right out here on the patio, actually, and he didn't come to complain or, or to share his heart over something that was bothering him, but he said, I just came to offer you a gift of scripture. And he read to me the account of Gideon's 300 men and then offered almost no commentary He just said, I wanted to share that with you. And he knew, and I knew where he was coming from, that it was sort of that that note to to a leader who would say, it probably feels at times like your army is getting kind of whittled down and your people are at odds and maybe some have left and all of that. And he said, I just want you to know that that's not that uncommon. And so today, as he shared that gift of scripture with me at a timely moment, I'm going to share the gift of scripture with you with some commentary. You know, it took three acts of God to get Gideon going. I don't know if you know this, but the first is that he makes a meal for the angel who delivers the message. He said, don't leave, stay here. I'm gonna bring this meal to you. And when he does bring the meal, he sets it down on a rock. The angel touches it with his staff and it combusts. It goes up in flame. So it becomes this offering before the Lord. And then Gideon said, now I know I'm talking to the divine. 
But before he would go out, in fact, before Judges 6 is over, we have the famous encounter of the miracle of the fleeces, one being wet when the ground was dry and vice versa. I, I do find it sort of interesting because we actually use that phrase, right? We say, well, I'm coming to a place of decision and so I'm, I'm putting out a fleece. Have, has anybody used that phrase? You know, has anybody done that? I'm, I'm putting out a fleece. All right, I've said it. The rest of you apparently haven't. This next part doesn't make as much sense. I was, oh, raise your hands for me just to make like a, oh, good, good, good. Okay, good. I think it would be interesting had, had Gideon used something other than fleece, you know, spongy moss or horsehide leather or something like that. He could have done that and had the same results, but then would we say the same thing? Well, I'm trying to make a decision, so now I'm putting out my spongy moss to figure out, but anyway. None of you have put out a fleece, so I guess that's, that's all good. So he gets going finally, and, and there's a, a couple of things that I'd like us to see before we even get to the battle, which we're really not even going to talk a whole lot about the battle today. Essentially, the, the battle is one of trickery that, that Gideon goes in with a, a vastly outmatched army, and he surrounds the camp, and the people think that they are surrounded by a vast army, and they're cast into confusion and end up fighting one another. And so as happened in other Old Testament stories, the, the victory is won really without the people of God doing much of anything except being available. And so Gideon is credited with this wonderful win. But before he gets there, a couple of things happen. The first one I want to talk about today is that God's identity and destiny must be called out. The angel sees Gideon, who is hiding, and he addresses him this way. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. That's a pretty sweet title. Mighty man of valor, yes. I mean, I think dads that are in the, in the congregation here, ask your children, your wife, I, you know, why don't you address me this week as mighty dad of valor? I mean, this is a title that I don't get thrown around a whole lot. But I will guarantee you, he did not feel like a mighty man of valor at that time. He just didn't. He's hiding, he's, he's distressed, he's upset, He's not sure what to expect. He's not sure where God is in any of this. And yet the address to him is this. You are God's mighty man of valor and God is with you. What we see happening in this moment is this. There is a recovery of the identity and destiny of God over Gideon's life. When we celebrate what God is doing in the lives of our children, when we celebrate what God is doing in the lives of our students, what we, when we celebrate what God is doing in the lives of the next generation, essentially what we have the opportunity as a church to do is to call out the identity and the destiny of God over the next generation. This is a powerful call. This will change the way that you pray. This will change the way that you interact. This will change the way that you think about life and service and ministry. So here we have somebody cowering, unsure of himself, and yet the word of God that comes to him is, you are mighty. You are a man of valor. You are a man of purpose, and God is with you. 
I don't want you to ever underestimate the importance of this kind of thinking because if we are going to be a church that invests in the next generation, some of us are in our 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond. Some of us are not gonna be here forever. None of us are gonna be here forever, but what are we going to leave behind? How can we get excited about what God is doing in the next generation? Today, we're gonna baptize eight young men and women who are saying publicly yes to Jesus Christ, who are saying I'm at that place where I'm ready to go public with my faith. And we celebrate that, why? Because we are helping to establish and to call out the identity and destiny of young men and women. Many of them would say, you know what, this is, I'm early in this journey, they probably have no full understanding of all that God will do in their life. Because who of us does? And what we are doing as a church is we are calling forth the identity and the destiny of God in the next generation. Parents, this is your call. Mentors, this is your call. Teachers, this is your call. But it's not the only thing that we see this angel doing. We actually see that there is a restoration in, uh, in the confidence of God himself that Gideon needs. Look at his response. And tell me if you have not felt this way at one time or another. Gideon said to him, verse 13, please my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. I believe that Gideon's comments here represent the lament of a generation that knows the stories of God but have not seen the evidence of God's presence. This is a bad state to be in. I know in my head that God is great. I know in my head that God is supposed to be doing wonderful things. I know in my head that there's this identity and destiny that he has that he wants to work out for me but I have not encountered it. And so in a moment of sort of raw scriptural honesty, Gideon's answering the question by saying, well then where is God? If I'm supposed to be a mighty man of, of valor, why does it feel like he's abandoned us? You know, I remember even as a young man, I was bothered that the church experience that I knew seemed largely focused on the great things that God had once done but it never seemed like we had anything of, of recent value to speak of. It's a very disheartening place to be. So we have to understand that when we're calling out the identity and destiny in the next generation, we must pray for hunger, we must pray for God-sized encounters and calling on their life, not simply a regurgitation of something that God is said to have done. But we pray for a new move of God in every generation. And every generation needs it, as we see in Gideon's comments. But the conversation isn't over. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? He was having the encounter right there. He just didn't realize it, right? I mean, this is Gideon encountering the presence of God, the mandate of God, the call of God, but he's so cynical that he just doesn't even see it. And I think this is important for us as we pray for the next generation, as we pray for our own hearts. 
Lord, that I would be sensitive when you're speaking. The Lord said to him, but I will be with you. You're gonna strike the Midianites as one man. After he complains, he says, I'm from the weakest clan. I'm the weakest in my father's house. So what we see happening here is that God takes a leader who is very unsure of God's presence and yet quite certain of his own inability and God moves to cause his purposes to unfold through him. The final outcome, as we said, is that Gideon is gonna defeat the Midianite army, but there is more happening that we need to take note of. That brings us to our second point. God's worship must be refined. If you look toward the end of the chapter in verse 25, Gideon's kind of making peace with this calling and he said, okay, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna call the people together. We're gonna do what God's called us to do. And then he has a visitation again from the Lord with specific instructions. And this is what it says in verse 25 and 26. Take your father's bull, the second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that stands beside it and build an altar to your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. I just find this very fascinating that before the battle is going to be engaged, Gideon is called to restore the order of worship. And if you think this was a small task, you need to think again. Gideon is so afraid to do this. He's so afraid to defy his own family and his own people and he's rightly afraid because the next day when they find out that he in fact has done it, they want him killed for it. So he's very afraid to do it. So he goes and he does this thing by night because he's afraid of what's gonna happen. And he does tear down the altar of Baal and he builds an altar to the Lord and he begins to make sacrifices there. I just find this very fascinating that before the fight is fought on the battlefield, worship must be evaluated and refined. We are called as the people of God to engage in the spiritual battle over our world. But I would suggest that before we walk out to the front lines of that battlefield, which we do prayerfully, not with a sword, but before we do that, our, our evaluation of worship is so important. A.W. Tozer said these things on worship. He said, millions call themselves by Jesus' name. That is true and they pay some token homage to him, but a simple test will show how little a person is really honoring among them. And so he just simply, simply asked this question. When, when we're asked to leverage between God and money, or God and people, or God and personal ambition, or God and self, or God and human love, is God continually taking second place in our process? Those other things will become exalted above him if we are not careful. However, the proof is in the choices that we make day after day through our lives. A.W. Tozer on worship also said this. He said, Christians don't tell lies. They just go to church and sing them. I thought, A.W., that's a little harsh but I'm not certain that it's wrong because we sing a lot of things that we may or may not mean. Before the battle would be fought, there was a refining of God's people whose worship had become 
polluted by idolatry. In fact, it had been embraced so, so thoroughly, these other things, that there was not the discernment any longer to even realize or the humility to realize that certain altars needed to be torn down and certain altars need to, needed to be reconstructed. Zephaniah chapter two. I love this statement of humility where the prophet says, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Amy and I were talking about this verse. That's a, that's a powerful thing. I mean, to say, God, cause us to be humble and then not feel the need to get up and tell everybody about it. But God, cause us to be humble. I was listening to... Um, a message. You know, sometimes this like a quote will stick with you for years. I, I heard this message probably 15, maybe almost 20 years ago. It's from Ron Walborn, who's the dean at Alliance Theological Seminary, and at the time he was a professor there. And um, so I heard him speaking, and, and he was speaking about Gideon and this call to go in and sort of restore the order of worship with the people of God, to tear down the altars of Baal, the idols that had crept in and been embraced. He tore those down, and the people are very upset with him. And he said this phrase, and I thought it was so telling and so important. He said, we must always be careful before we tear an altar down. Be careful to think about what it was built there for, but then also to be careful about the altars that we keep. I think what a powerful opportunity for us as a church who want to say, Lord, we just want to exalt the name of Jesus to continually be refined in worship by asking that question, are we tearing things down that we ought to keep? And are we holding on to things that we ought to let go? Here's the third thing that happened on the way to the battle. The third thing that we're going to talk about today is that God's economy must be embraced. I love in, in chapter seven, it actually begins this way. It says, the Lord said to Gideon, so the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Too many, not too few. This is too many. So Gideon did what, what God asked him to do. He, he starts rallying the people. He starts getting people gathered together. And now he's got 32,000 people that are ready to go to battle to do the things that God's called him to do. And the word of God now comes to Gideon and says, yeah, too many. Imagine this from God's perspective or from Gideon's perspective. But understand what, what God was doing. He actually says this very overtly. He says the, the people that are with you are too many lest Israel boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. Man, I don't know about you, that's, that's pretty powerful. We, we like to make good plans. We like to get things in place, and yet here's Gideon doing all of the right things, amassing the people that he's gonna need to do this, and God says, no, I actually wanna do something in your midst that is only going to be explained as an act of God. Somebody asked me recently, Aaron, what is God doing in your church that you can only explain as his work? And I'm still wrestling with that question because I think we're actually pretty good planners. I think we're pretty good givers. 
At least when somebody gets up and says, hey, you're not giving enough. We need to give more. We do a pretty good job of, of kind of pooling our, our resources and, and serving and everything. But the challenging question to Gideon was this. He said, I don't want you to just go and win a battle. I want to do something that is only going to be seen as an act of God. So imagine this from Gideon's perspective. He's got 32,000 troops. He's nervous, but he's willing. Not a bad fighting force. Pruning number one, send home the people who are afraid. Anybody afraid? Go home. 22,000 say, I'm kind of afraid, so I'll leave. So now he's got a group of 10,000. Not too shabby, but not nearly as strong as 32,000 was. And then comes pruning number two. It's the drinking test. And if you remember the story, he says, I want you to have the people drink water and then you're gonna sort them out based on how they do it. 300 of these people drank differently. And I can only imagine Gideon probably saying, all right, this isn't really that bad. We only got 300 of the guys that don't know how to drink right. And we got this, the, the majority that are still here, we're probably gonna be fine. And then God says, send that group home. This is a disaster. But it's as if God is saying, I am going to rebuild. I am going to restore. I am going to deliver. But I'm not going to do it the way that you think. And I'm not going to do it the way that you would do it. This is we get a very strange kind of phenomenon of this notion that if, if we don't do it, that somehow God is not going to be able but this is a very bizarre sort of pseudo-atheism that kind of comes into our own practical work. Do I trust him that victory is going to be won? That is the crazy question that Gideon is forced to ask. Do we trust him that he will actually rebuild the church in a way that is infinitely better than the sum of our best efforts. That's kind of the crux of the question when we talk about this message. There were some hurdles that had to be overcome. Of course, there's fear. Here's 300 guys thinking, am I just an idiot? Why did I sign up to this? Why did I drink like that? Why didn't I just drink like the other people? I don't, you know, they didn't know what was going on. There's fear. I mean, legitimate fear. We know how the story ends. They don't know how the story ends. They're in the middle of it. We don't know how our story's gonna end. We're in the middle of it. So we wrestle with questions of fear. Am I going to look foolish? Did I hear rightly? The stakes feel very high. I also think this is important. I wanna draw attention to this and we're gonna bring this thing to a close. There was a relational stress that we think very little of when we look at this account. There were some who were with us who now are not with us. In fact, a lot in Gideon's case. The great majority who were side by side, shield by shield, ready to fight together, and now they're not here. Notice in the account of Gideon that it does not place a value on those who stayed and those who left. It does not place a value on water lapping versus kneeling to drink. It doesn't come with a value of good. These are the good guys and these are the bad guys. It basically just says, these are the ones that were selected for the God-sized task. In other words, those who didn't go to battle 
didn't stop being God's people, but they weren't present for this task. And in a season where, you know, we've had one of the greatest shufflings in the church world that probably any of us can remember. I and mean, we have people that are here because things didn't work out where you used to be and so you came here. We have people that were here that didn't like the way things were going here and have left. And so this, this great shuffling and we've got to now figure out how to relate well. And I think one of the things is this. To simply say those who didn't go to battle didn't stop being God's people but they weren't present for this task. God's economy must be embraced because we are often called to rebuild with less than we think we need. So then he goes to battle and they win. And then Gideon goes to battle again and kind of screws a whole bunch of stuff up. And then he leaves them uh, a legacy of, of reintroducing idolatry back to the people. Yay. What a he like. I just preached that message pretty hard to end there. When you read the book of Judges, and I'm going to conclude with this, it leaves you with a deep sense that the people of God, the leaders that he uses, and the specific heroes like Gideon don't give us the final picture of faith and the final picture of health that we would hope for. These were deeply flawed people. They were led by deeply flawed people who frequently turned back to the old paths of disobedience. I wish that wasn't the story, but that is the story. It shows us the people of God ultimately, though, did not need a political or a military rescue. Those would come at times and would usually be squandered over time. What the people of God needed was a change of heart. They needed an internal revolution that would radically reorient them to God. And although that wouldn't come for some time, we stand in the interim period between the cross and the second coming of Christ where everything that needs to be done to finally renew our old nature has been done. Everything that needs to be given has been given. Everything that needs to be, uh, every victory that needs to be won has been won. Yes, God still uses pain and turmoil to wake us up to our need for him. And I would argue that he is doing that even now. In all of the difficulties, in all of the stress, and all of the anxiety that you read about in the headlines, there is a giant wake-up call to our world, but there's also a wake-up call to the church. And we can celebrate today what we have been given in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true and better warrior of valor who imparts his identity and destiny in us, who refines and restores our worship, and who delivers his victory without his people saving themselves. This is the good conclusion to everything that feels lacking as we read the book of Judges. How great is our Lord Jesus Christ. How great is our God who has given us so much.
And so today we're going to celebrate the heart change that he does. And right now, just in a moment after we sing, we're going to have some people right up here. And, and I want you to celebrate together. I want you to take a, 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 a snapshot in your mind, mental snapshot of these young men and women, mighty men of God, mighty women of God, many women of valor and men of valor that God is going to be raising up to call out his identity and destiny over their lives. And let's be faithful to pray and to instill confidence in that next generation. I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now, and the worship team can come and prepare to lead us uh, in one last song before we go to baptisms. Would you stand together for just a moment? It's a holy moment for us to stand before the Lord. If you're able, why don't you stand up together? So, Father, here we are in your presence this morning. What a beautiful time for us to be gathered in your name. Lord, that we are able to learn from the winds We're able to learn from the mistakes. We're able to learn from all of these things, the the interaction that you have had with your people. Jesus, would you do a work in this next generation so that we would not be saying, we've heard the stories, but we don't really know you. We've heard the stories, but we haven't really got a glimpse of you in so long. Would you stir, God, in the hearts of the next generation a deep hunger? A deep hunger, God, for your presence. We confess, God, that every generation has its victories and every generation has its failures. And Lord, to the extent that in my generation we've not gone far enough, in my generation we've been distracted, in my generation we've settled for less. God, we confess that before you. We repent. And Jesus, you're the God of hope. You're the God of of new tomorrows. You're the God of new beginnings. We pray, God, that even as you're not done with us yet, we pray that you might restore, rebuild. Jesus, we invite you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to work. We pray, Father, that the next generation would take that next step, go even farther, God and the work that you desire to do. And Lord, I pray again, we've said this before, but I pray it today that we would be a church that is known for loving and investing and building into and praying over the next generation. That even a small step today of walking with some of these young men and women as they're following you in baptism, Lord, we would get excited about those things. So we thank you for this holy moment. We thank you for the heart change that you desire to do. I pray, Lord, that even now we would be open to say, Lord, just change my heart. Change my heart, change my heart, change my heart. I've accepted an identity or a destiny that is not of you. Change my heart. My worship has gotten stuck in in, in all the things that I need and I want. Lord, change my heart. God, I have thought that it was up to me and my resources or or the sum of my best efforts, our best efforts. Lord, change my heart that we might see a move of God in this generation, in this season, in this time. 
change the atmosphere. Lord, even as we, as we worship you, change the atmosphere over our church, over our families, over our community. We welcome you, Lord. We thank you for this season. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the restoration of God. We receive it today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. If you would remain standing, let's lift up.